Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by fashion designer, author, and co-star of Netflix's Queer Eye and Next in Fashion, Tan France. Stay tuned. So we all have a style and a mode for living. We curate it, we celebrate it, we share it, and we own it as it evolves and mirrors our intimate reflections on how we view ourselves. Of course, assuming that one even prioritizes this, I've always wondered if this is inherent or it can be coached, especially to harness those native qualities of self-trust and confidence. Now, since I learned from Tan France that brushing your eyebrows is the real secret to taming them, I was so grateful to share a chat with the singular designer, author, stylist, and co-star of Queer Eye and Next in Fashion on Netflix. His wit, intelligence, stylish sensibility, and authenticity stem from his background in the fashion industry and a real knack for human connection and listening. We talked about cultivating trust and confidence through his work, about being a South Asian Muslim gay man in 2021, and about life with his husband and a two to three month old. He's the author of a best-selling memoir, Naturally Tan, and even with all his success and the recent launch of a genderless clothing line named Was Him, we started by talking about something obviously way bigger, having a Lego figure in his own likeness. Uh, well, here's the thing. There have only been, I believe there have only been a couple of shows, Friends and Seinfeld, who have had a full uh, Lego set done. And so to know that we're in company like that blows my mind. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine when I was playing with my Legos as a kid, I ever thought, oh, one day I'll be one of these. Right, right. That's quite a mic drop. I There have been so many mic drops, though, over the last three and a half years. I don't know what is the most mic droppable moment. Uh, something you're doing is going right. Yeah, I was very, very proud. I mean, listen, no matter what happens, they can't take that away from me. And in my opinion, mine's the best one. And I think my castmates will agree because mine's got the very obvious tan France hair. Yes. Um, so yeah, I honestly, I couldn't be prouder. I think that's a victory for sure. Thanks. As a, a parent and particularly a parent to a, a new two to three month old, I would always, as a, as a doctor, factor in that much more time to listen and learn whenever I visited with those parents, because it is such a challenge. Were, were you prepared for this? Did, did you find that there was, uh, you know, some preparation that you either could or couldn't really factor in? You know, I would uh, love to convince the world that I am a very prepared person. Um, I am not. I am the kind of person that just thinks, oh, it'll work out. They'll figure himself out. And so that's how it was with our child. Um, his name is Ismail, and he is uh, just about to turn three months in a couple of days. And uh, the reason why we weren't prepared, we well, I was planning to be somewhat prepared. The nursery was going to be ready, and I was going to at least have baby bottles and diapers and all that kind of stuff ready. Yeah. However, my son came almost two months early, seven and a half weeks early. And so I don't think anyone 
is expecting their child to be that early. And yeah. so we were not anywhere near prepared as, uh, as prepared as we should have been. Um, but even if we were prepared, the, the things that the component, the, those components really don't prepare a person necessarily. Yes, they may ease your stress by having diapers and um, wipes and all those things ready. But it's the mental state that one is in, uh, the lack of sleep that you can't prepare someone for. So in answer to your question, no, we weren't physically prepared as far as things. We also were not physically prepared or mentally prepared for a baby. Yeah, if we could find four extra hours of sleep every day, that would probably help us prepare, you know, yeah. at that for sure. Yeah. Has Ismail started to smile and, and do a little bit of that with you? Yes. Oh, it's only first thing in the morning and it uh, reinvigorates me each day to remind me that, okay, there is someone behind those eyes and that is a very special thing. I mean, to be fair though, he could, I mean, he cries a lot. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me that much. I'm just obsessed with him. I've wanted him for 20 years now. And so I, I, I think that when he cries and, and the things that many parents would be frustrated by, I let it go. Cause I just think I've wanted you for so long and I've prayed for you for so long. And so I'm not about to bite the hand that fed me. Did you have any surprise learnings about yourself so far? in these past uh, two to three months where you've said, gosh, boy, this, this is really something I'm realizing about myself that I just never knew. Uh, well, first thing, uh, most importantly, is I can function on way less sleep than I ever imagined. Before having Ismail, I needed minimum eight hours. Anyone who's ever worked with me knows if I don't have eight hours, I'm just not the TV temperance that people know. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm, I don't have the energy. I'm always... Friendly, I'm always smiley, but I can't put in the performance that I would with eight hours. Um, now I'm uh, now I'm showing that I can do it on three or four. However, about um, two weeks ago, we hired what we call in England a night nurse. Here, I forgot what they call it, um, but that's somebody that watches our baby from ten thirty till seven, and that has helped massively. Game changer for us. And I know I'm in a very privileged position. But we can't avoid the fact that I'm in a proper position. I'm not going to apologize for the fact that I have my job and my finances. Therefore, I can hire help. And I also accept that I don't have what my family had. We all, I come from a really, really Pakistani family where everyone lives within five minutes of each other. You've always got help. We truly believe in it takes a village. I don't have that. We don't have any family around. Well, do, do, do you find that it's giving you a little more licensure to seek and, and sort of access the help? Yeah. I um, So I do this uh, like weekly journal, online journal. I missed it this week, but I'm going to do it today. Um, where I talk about my weird guilt about hired help. Uh, having to hire help to raise help raise our child because it's so not the Asian it's not my version of the Asian way right. I've never nobody in my entire extended family and there's over 150 of us in England none of us have ever had a nanny uh, none of us have ever had outside help and so there's a lot of guilt that comes along with that however every time one of my cousins I'm very close to my family yeah. and I speak to them really regularly and I'm on a group text with many of them uh, many of my cousins and sure. they all, they've all started making fun over the last few weeks saying, whoa, we thought you hadn't changed, but clearly you have, cause you've got uh, a nanny. 
and I, I, I throw it right back saying, you have no idea what this life is like. I don't have access to family and friends like you did uh, when you had your children. When my, when my siblings all had their children, they all stayed with my mom for 40 days minimum. Right. Yeah. That's typical in our culture. And we didn't have that. We were just thrown into the deep end. Well, it's almost like you have to create that village around you in some ways. And and you find it definitely at this phase with the parade of strollers that are that are always parked and you get some camaraderie in that way with other parents. Yeah, Yeah, really. I have noticed that um, there's been a greater connection with people than I've ever had because of uh, my baby. And it's usually with fellow parents. Yeah. You you posted a photo recently of you holding your son's hand, which was with a quote that I, I absolutely love from Brandy Carlisle. And the quote was, welcome to the end of being alone inside your mind. Yeah. And, and I wonder if you can reflect on that a little bit about how that sort of resonated for you, both being a parent or or even a spouse or even your own memories of youth within the, the context of your growing up. Uh, let me start this by saying, um, uh, Brandy is a very good friend of mine and she, um, sang it to me and my husband this past weekend on oh, stage wow. by my request. And it was one of the most beautiful moments and I will never, ever forget it for the rest of my life. Um, and that, that, the, that opener of the song, the lyric, I think is so beautiful, um, because it really does articulate what I wouldn't have been able to articulate myself. I've loved my husband for 14 years. He was the most important and is the most, one of the most important things in my life now and was the most important thing in my life up until three months ago. And I, uh, I thought, okay, no, I really am tethered to this other person for the rest of my life. However, having a baby is a very different kind of bond. Um, and it's strange. I, I apologized to my husband a couple of days after uh, we uh, I met my baby. I, I didn't meet my baby for the first two days. Um, I couldn't get back to America in time. I missed the birth. And, uh, and as soon as I saw him and held him, I said to him, I can't believe that you're, you've become my favorite person. And it is, it's all, all consuming. And I turned to my husband and I said, I'm so sorry. I will always love you. This yeah, person right here will have my heart till my dying day. Um, and if God forbid anything were to ever happen to him, I don't know how to recover from this. Um, and that is also how I feel about my husband, but it's very different. Yeah. Um, I, I've never felt so vulnerable, um, so emotional as I do right now. Um, and it makes me, it, actually the funny thing it, it, that it did was it made me think of how shitty I am with my mom. I have a wonderful relationship with my mom. I'm, I'm, I'm a, in my opinion, I'm a good child. Of course, right. So I'm now middle-aged. I call her every week. I take care, really good care of her as best I can, which is not necessary necessarily for a youngest child in, in the Pakistani culture. It's the eldest son who's yeah. meant to take care of the parent, but I, I also do. Um, whenever I'm home, I cook with her. I, I help her as much as possible around the house, even now, which which people find funny on my social. The first thing I do when I get home to my mom's house is I make roti and salad with my mom, yeah. even after a 14-hour flight back home. It's just what we do together. Um, and now... I just think, gosh, if my son called me once a week, I all hell will break loose. <laughs> there is no way that that's okay, that he would call me once a week for 10 minutes to make sure I'm okay. I want to 
I want to know that I am as important to you as you are to me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how it's affected me as far as my childhood goes. And I just think, how are you difficult sometimes when this person did everything they could to, to raise you? You know, in, in that context, because it, it, it reframes your sense of vulnerability and your connection and your, you know, the idea of what kind of emotional tie you have to another human being. Ha, has this reframing in some ways, has it at all reframed any of your thinking about your professional work, about fashion, about style, about comfort, about even the attitude or the confidence that's required to um, share or present a version of it? You know how it's changed my professional life is um, it's not so much about style of fashion, quite honestly. It's about uh, what I will take on and what I won't take on now. Um, up until three months ago, if I wanted to do a job, I'd do a job. If it, um, and it usually requires travel. I my primary residence is Salt Lake City, Utah. There's nothing entertainmenty about Utah, and so I usually have to fly to New York, London, or LA. Um, and, and I would do that at the drop of a hat, no big deal. If I got a call on a Monday saying I've got to be in New York on a Tuesday, yes, fine, of course I can be there. Um, I've, I've become a lot more comfortable uh, saying no to almost everything because I just want to be able to focus on my son. So when it comes to my professional life, the only way it really has affected it is by prioritizing how I give up my time with my child and my husband. Um, before I would just drag Rob, my husband, along with me wherever I go, and he was always happy to come along. Um, but now that's not possible. We don't want to ruin uh, what we built up with our routine with our child. Um, and so that's a component that has, yeah. that has changed my professional life the most. When it comes to what I do with fashion and, uh, and style when it, uh, with regards to confidence, that's a constant for me. It's always been something that I've been very passionate about and very vocal about. It's not just putting clothes on somebody to uh, pretty them up or beautify them. It's to change the way they view themselves to bolster their self-esteem. And, and that never went away. Um, and I, I use it just as much now as I did before when uh, the first couple of weeks after having um, Ismail, I wouldn't make as much of an effort and I'd feel pretty low. And then I started putting clothes on again that I liked and I just feel better about myself. And that's definitely something that I'm going to encourage in Ismail when he gets older. If you have a sense of style, and yeah. you are are really, really your self esteem is is off the charts, and you have developed a sense of an air of confidence and comfort in with who you are. Yeah. Do you ever risk losing empathy? Oh, towards others. Uh, in my opinion, no, because I use style to encourage uh, my self esteem. If I, ha if I was just naturally the most confident person, I wouldn't need anything to achieve that. I use clothes um, very resolutely. And so I definitely don't feel like it, um, it, it hinders my empathy when it comes to other people. Actually, when I, especially on the show that I'm uh, most known for, which is Queer Eye, yeah. I think it helps me really understand what their perspective is. Cause I felt like that. I felt like many of them have felt in the past. I mean, I made, I made it very clear on season one of queer. I, the reason why I became so involved with style is because my partner dumped me because his uh, verbatim, he said, you've let yourself go. And, uh, and that really did something to me. And yeah. so now when, every time I get dressed up, I know what it does to me. And therefore I know what it could do to somebody else. It doesn't make me less empathetic. I think it makes me more empathetic. You know, as as doctors and in the medical profession, we we have to be, um, you know, we're trained and we're proud to be agnostic. 
to who we interact with, interface with because of that, you know, sense of self-awareness and and that uh, balance of empathy. Does it help you to, in in some ways, kind of be interactive with just about anyone that doesn't matter? what their level of style or fashion is. Absolutely. Almost everybody that we help on Queer Eye has, uh, almost everyone has a base level of what they like uh, when it comes to style or what they understand when it comes to style and fashion. And so I find I, I find that no more difficult, uh, no more challenging than I would if somebody uh, had a wardrobe that they really care about and they just wanted uh, to have it reinvigorate, reinvigorated. And so, no, I, I don't think it matters either way. I start from the same place with everybody. Tell me who you are. Tell me how you want to feel and we'll figure it out. And I would like to believe that after all these years on Queer Eye, after all these seasons, people have started to realize that so often I'll put people in something that you would never see me in. I have no interest in wearing those things. It's, but it's not about what I want to wear. It's what they want to communicate to the world by what they're putting on their bodies, which is why I, uh, so many people in fashion, I think, uh, do not like me and they don't like what I do because I'm, I'm the anti-fashion guy. I'm saying, uh, care more about how you feel in your clothes, not so much how much you spend on what that label says on the inside of that piece of clothing. Who cares about a trend? Who cares what Vogue says is hot this season? If it doesn't make you feel good, don't wear that. Um, And I'm not trying to denigrate any of those publications or anyone in the fashion world. I love what you do, but many people can't relate. And so I really wanted to make style more relatable to the every person. And I felt excluded from the fashion world for many, many, many years. And so I want them to understand that I get it. And I want you to still feel good, even if you don't subscribe to any of those trends. Sure. And is that is that the ultimate and most tangible joy? Because you see that through another person. Yeah. Is that hard to get when you're not necessarily thinking of fashion from someone else's eyes? Yeah. So is it the 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 tangible result for me or or the feeling for me? Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, is it hard to get through other areas other than fashion? No, because what I do on the show is not. I use clothes as a vehicle to get people to open up yeah. to me and disclose their deepest darkest secrets, so I can yeah. hopefully help them feel better. And therefore, I think it's made me a great communicator. I over communicate my feelings and my experiences to hopefully encourage other people to do the same to me. Yeah. With me. And so I think that that puts me in a very strong position to be able to uh, offer advice, sometimes unsolicited, uh, <laughs> to be able to offer advice and say, I can see that this thing is hurting you or causing you problems or hindering you in some way. Let me yeah. offer you this advice. Which brings me to this, which is that, you know, you almost have to develop this this style or even this talent of being a great listener and almost counseling, you know, people in that way. Have you become a student of that in some way? It's just like how to really, really listen deeply. And and is is that the kind of learning that you're doing on an ongoing basis? Yeah. I, uh, I, first off, I have learned a lot from my castmates who I think we all learn a lot from each other, the way we interact with the heroes. These are people that we've literally never met before. We only hear their name that morning. Um, and we're expected to change their lives within technically three days. Um, and then that's not all day, every day for three days. Um, and we see truly lasting results. Some of our heroes we helped four years ago and they've still benefited greatly from their experience on our show. And so uh, I I learned a lot from my castmates, but I watch a lot of TV and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and I listen to people who do a great job of listening and then reacting to what they're hearing. 
And I, and I think it's a really important component of my job. Um, but to be fair, I, I was that person to a certain extent before this, which is how I got my job. Um, this casting process was rigorous, uh, incredibly intense. And uh, one of the parts was to make sure that we don't just talk about ourselves, that we listen to what this person's saying and, uh, and react. I, growing up in a South Asian household, we are very social people. Um, my community is very, very sociable. We always had at least five or six people at the house and that's on a, a quiet day. And so you learn, and we, we're, we're, our culture is known for being gossipy. We know what Anthony on the street is doing. I know who her son's married, like all that stuff. And so uh, we are such sociable people um, that I, I think that we're taught to communicate well at a very young age, sometimes in a way that doesn't, uh, that the West doesn't respond well to. I think that I've struggled with that. If I, if I were to be honest about what I struggle with most in the West is, and on the shows that I'm on, it's communicating in a way that is appropriate for Caucasian people, uh, Western people who aren't used to just hearing what they need to hear. Let me ask you this then for, you know, if aliens landed and they're meeting all of us for the first time, yeah, how would you describe to them what it's like to be a South Asian gay Muslim man in 2021? Oh, I, I, it would be too hard to, to give you a soundbite of what it is to be all three. So I'm going to have to separate them out. Even whenever I speak, I make it very clear to everybody. I'm not checking any of my personality or anything that I represent at the door. I've got nothing to hide or to be ashamed of. But describing what that must be to somebody who's never experienced this is impossible. You can't conflate the three. What it is to be a queer person is somebody who's constantly having to fight for the right to be treated equally. What it is to be South Asian is to be surrounded by hopefully a community of love and support uh, and uh, great moral grounding. Um, and what it is to be a Muslim is to, um, to have your religion and your decency in question that every turn. When, when you think about those and all the other hats and identities that, that you carry, does it sometimes uh, become such that you, you have to become comfortable at integrating all of them at yeah. the same time? Yeah. I mean, if I, if one doesn't, uh, you're kind of out of the game, especially in my world. Yeah. Um, you can't really ignore any of the the components that make you who you are. The press is always going to pull at the thread that you don't want them to pull at. And so you just have to get comfortable with uh, making it clear that you are all of the things um, that you are and that you are comfortable in that space. And it took me a while to get there. I didn't really talk about being a Muslim for the first two years of queer eye. It was weird. I almost felt like I had to come out as... Muslim uh, in a more complicated way than I did coming out as a gay person. People expected that because I was on Queer Eye. And so, yeah, I, I, I've, it's, it's something that is unavoidable if you're in a position like mine. You mentioned uh, su such a strong social and emotional tie to those who are in your family or in your sort of family social circles. Is there a difference in your head when someone calls you Tan versus Thanvir? No. No, I just think if somebody called me Thinveed, they really want to understand the Asian in me. Um, but to be fair, even my mom has, I, I don't remember a time she's ever called me Thinveed. Um, nobody in my family has, my grandma, um, 
before she passed away she would call me the lead but other than that I've been known as Tan or actually my my nickname in my family is not uh, not necessarily Tan for the younger generation anybody in my mum's or my uh, grandparents it was Tanno which is Dunvee, but yeah, in a cutesy yeah. way. Um, and it's from the movie, Sh- there's a movie, I don't know how much you're into Bollywood. I'm obsessed with Bollywood, I always was. Um, there was a movie called Sholay, which is a classic. And Hima Mali had a horse called Tanno. And so my family started calling me Tanno. I mean, it's almost like that that sense of home, right? That we feel, and, and it probably doesn't matter what we wear, what we're called, how we react, but there's some intangible quality to feeling like you're at home. Yeah. And whether it's Thunno or, or Tan with others, I'm sure that, you know, those are the tethers that probably, you know, bring you comfort and solace. How do you nourish some of that same kind of feeling of home and self-awareness? Do, do you enjoy or prioritize the kind of moments of silence or isolation or some would call that meditations even? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't meditate. I, I love that people do. Some of my castmates do, and I find it fascinating. Um, I've got too busy a mind for that, I think. And I am the kind of person that's always on the go doing something. I'm a, there's a term for it in my culture called brut brut, um, which means basically you've got ants in your pants, you're always on the yeah. go. And I've been referred to as brut brut my entire life. So no, I, do, I don't have any moments where I really... Um, kick back and reflect other than times with my husband uh, and my child where I'm sat at home. Uh, but even then I'm usually listening to music or watching TV. It's very rare the silence. However, one point I want to mention that is kind of a, a follow on from our, uh, my last point, which was um, what people call me and, and what makes me feel more at home. It's not necessarily the name, the things that make me feel grounded still and connected to my culture is Urdu or Hindi, my family still speak our language. Um, And my first language wasn't English. And so, and now with my son, I have somebody to speak Urdu with, obviously, or Hindi. He doesn't speak it back, obviously, but I've got somebody to talk it at um, locally. And that's important. And our nanny, we're looking at a a nanny now who will speak uh, Hindi. Um, So my child understands that that's their first language also. I love my white husband, but he thankfully accepts the fact that I, I want my child's first language language to be Hindi. And so those kind of things uh, make me feel at home. Let me ask you this. I wonder if you feel that all of this is a mechanism for storytelling, right? Uh, your your professional life, mm-hmm. how you've actually um, been able to experience now the, the joy of being married and, and parenting. How, how has your work been a vehicle for developing trust and relationships? You know, um, my my work is all about building relationships, whether it be on camera or off. If I don't build good relationships, I don't get jobs. Um, I'm not, obviously I'm not white. Um, and therefore it's a little harder for somebody who is a person of color, queer, brown, Muslim immigrant person of color, yeah. um, to get jobs, uh, they're, they're not lining up to uh, lining up to give us them. And so uh, the way I get those is by making sure that people see my value. Um, and so I network a lot and I become friendly with these people in these networks so they can see and understand my humanity and set aside those component parts, those other component parts that are necessary and significant to me, but shouldn't be wildly significant to them. Um, and then how I build trust through my work is uh, is by making sure that I continue to work with people that I love and care for and believe are doing something good in the world and the projects that I take on are to better or to forward um, 
uh, or, or move the needle when it comes to representation of our people, my people. And so I, I think that's how I built trust in the audience that knows me. And that's how we'll continue to build trust um, is by making sure that I'm working on the right kind of projects with the right kind of people who really want to tell a story that feels honest and true. I have to ask you this. So my wife and kids have said that I should grow my beard out and I resist because it's all gray and I'm either going to look like Santa Claus and I'm allergic to hair dye. And <laughs> you know, so, so I, what it brings it up for me and especially what's resonant for you as, as a style and fashion expert who embraces acceptance, is there a formula or a, a secret, if you will, to becoming self-assured in particularly our own maturation and aging and evolution, because, you know, we, we're all people who change every day and every, every month, every year, uh, et cetera. Is there, is there a mechanism to um, embrace that? You know, I wish there was, was. I, maybe there is, but I haven't found it yet. I, um, aging scares me. I'm not going to lie, aging does scare me. Um, I have, I accepted my grace when I was a teen and I, I, I don't remember a time uh, before I had my grace. So that's just a given. But other things that age me, wrinkles, whatever, that scares me and I do all I can to prevent that. Um, I, I, I hope that I will find peace in that eventually, but for right now, I'm clinging to my youth. Like you would not believe. Well, you know, for, uh, at least a 50 year old, I would say that the, the liberation part of being able to be at peace with it is certainly there. And you're doing so much to uh, show people how to embrace and accept the, the great things that they can find in themselves. Tan, thank you so much for, for being with us. What a treat and a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate you considering questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tan. And check out the Emmy Award-winning Queer Eye with season six now available only on Netflix. Till next time, I'm Abhay Narnika. Hi, this is Seema Goel with Fab Life 360. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to our station. 